The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, and welcome to the Retail Therapy Podcast, proudly brought to you by AWS. Having navigated the worst of the pandemic, businesses are now moving on to tackle the next big global disruptor in climate change. In this season, we're talking to business leaders, academics and climate experts about their personal journeys and fighting for a more sustainable future. We'll also learn more about businesses and how they're meeting their sustainability targets. This podcast contains discussions of topics related to mental health illness. If you or someone you know needs support, head to beyondblue.org.au or give the Beyond Blue team a call on 1300 22 4636. Welcome to part two of the very interesting and eye-opening conversation I had with Sarah Wilson, global best-selling author, thought leader, philanthropist and climate advisor. If you haven't heard part one, I encourage you to scroll back and have a listen to the first half of our discussion. Let's jump straight into part two. You mentioned, um, Sarah, I Quit Sugar Movement. You rose to prominence with the I Quit Sugar Movement, which became a New York Times bestseller and a multi-million dollar business. Was it the success from that you thought, okay, I'm now in a position where I can really use my profile and influence to tackle other issues close to your heart and make a difference? Yeah, I've been on that mission, I think, for a while. I had it in the back of my mind that that's what I was doing when I did my cadetship with News Limited. You know, a lot of people said, well, why didn't you do it with a broadsheet? Well, I, I mean, I loved doing my cadetship with News Limited. It was wonderful. It was a great training ground and um, I'm very grateful for the experience. But also I knew that I was on a mission to understand and be able to converse with the mainstream, the everyday Australian, mm. and to garner power. If I can use that language, I, I you know, I was, I was making sure that I was palatable you know, and then I went to Cosmo and then I went to MasterChef yeah. and I have done all of the, you know, really mainstream. You can't get more mainstream. No. I think somebody in media once said, you are the tart of Australian media. You've literally worked for everybody, which is true. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was, it was very much about, yes, I was getting rungs on the board. I was ensuring that I could be taken seriously. Yes. And, I, and by the people who were most receptive and really wanting different kinds of information. And that is, I'm talking people out in the suburbs. I'm talking about yes. people who are what, you know, what um, Scott Morrison and so on would call the quiet Australians. These are the people who are really, really open and receptive to these kinds of messages. So, yes, I've always had that in place. With I Quit Sugar, I suppose, yeah, yes, once the money started to come in, the thing that it did was enable me to make a very firm commitment to myself, and that was... Once I've earned enough to live comfortably on, when I say comfortably, I mean um, the minimum wage, CPI'd, for the rest of my life, because I know I can live on that, then I stop. And so I hit that mark at five years, and that was my goal, to hit it at five yeah. years, because I had an accountant. There's a big, long story in, the, <laughs> in, in, I can't remember if it was that book or First We Make the Beast Beautiful. It was, it, no, it was this one wild and precious life. My accountant came and said, all right, what are your goals? 
you know, what's your five-year goal? And I said, I don't do five-year goals. I don't care. <laughs> he said, no, no, make something up. So I said, all right, I want to learn, set myself up financially such that I could live off the minimum wage until I'm 94 and then I spend the rest of my time doing meaningful stuff so that I'm not caught up in the system. I I want to be of service. Yes. That's what I want to do. And so I did. I, I hit that goal, funnily enough, a week early, like to the week pretty much. Amazing. And, um, yeah, and that's what I did. I sold the business and I gave everything away because I, gave, I didn't amazing, need it. Amazing story. Uh, look, I, I don't know of anyone else that's um, it's truly inspiring and I think, you know, you're you, you, you're an absolute inspiration to all of us because it, um, you know, it's, it makes us feel a little bit shameful about ourselves because, um, and those people listening to this podcast, I think it does, in essence, um, you may not be able to live with just with four pairs of underpants for the week. I'm not sure I'd quite cope with that, but, but I think there's certainly, there's certainly lots of messages around, um, being purposeful about, you know, uh, you sh- when you shop. Uh, and I think most retailers would, would reward you for that. I think, you know, there's, it's about investing in yourself appropriately and only consuming what you need rather than consuming more. And we saw, look, a lot of bad behavior through COVID when I think about it. When you think about, you know, shelves being absolutely wiped out because people were pantry stacking and not taking a community, community mindset and thinking about others. And, you know, what you're saying here, there's so many lessons around just thinking a little bit more beyond just your own self and self interest uh, and um, putting the community and the environment into into your thinking i think would be obviously a, a better not only a better nation but a better world if some of even just a few of those um inspiring points are taken up, up by us because you know when we think about things like food waste there's so much so much in that alone is a topic we'll have to get you back sarah because i think there's just too, way too much for you and i to talk about but um you know today we've you know we're covering lots of ground i, I do want to um talk to you a little bit about climate change and and clean energy clean energy in particular because there have been hot issues in australia and over the years, we've had policies announced, then scrapped. And what do you think it's been? Why do you think it's been so difficult to get consensus at a government level when the science is so so overwhelming? Oh well, it's very particular to the Australian political setup. Unfortunately, um, I think overseas there's a lot more consensus and there's a lot more movement. Um, that said. I think what's happening in Australia is that there's an understanding now that we don't have to wait for government. I think that we watched the rest of the world be led by governments and and great initiatives, targets, incentives, subsidies of Mm. EVs, that kind of thing. Here in Australia, we've had to take a different approach and we've really got to give up on the fact that government is going to come and save us. And thankfully, um, business groups um, and finance uh, are taking the charge. And they are moving in this realm. But it is it is taking its time because we do have to do a, tra- a just transition. We are a coal and fossil fuel dependent country. Um, however, not to the extent that we might think. There are only between 20 and 60,000 jobs in fossil fuels. Now, Paul, you would know how many uh, staff does Woolies have? I think it's about 200,000. It's, it's it's a big number. There's, there's 1.3 million um, people working in retailers. So I think Woolies would be, we'd be close to 200,000 200, people, yes. Yeah. So when we talk about sort of, you know, jobs, you know, we're going to lose all these jobs, we're not talking a lot of jobs. Now, my, you know, these, these towns that rely on coal and other fossil fuels, um, you know, they need to be looked after. Yes. They need to be compensated and they need to be transitioned. They need to be reskilled. And no 
no one I know in the climate movement, no one I know in climate politics leaves that out of the equation. It is front and centre. So to answer your question, it is, it's an ideology uh, issue here in Australia at a political level, such that, you know, the, the, the politicians are heavily funded by, um, yes. by the fossil fuel industry. That's a huge issue. We have a huge issue around uh corruption and integrity, uh, which is why ICAC remains a really big issue. In, um, we're the only OECD country without a federal ICAC, mm. you know, an integrity committee which yes. can ensure that funding from these fossil fuel industries is not dictating policy. Um, so Australia is very particular, which is why we're at the bottom. We are at the bottom on most of the global indexes relating to climate policy, which is why also at the last... Um, COP26 in, in Glasgow, we came out, we won the Colossal Fossil Award, oh. right? They issue it each year to whoever clocked up the most amount of, you know, um, bad behaviour at COP26. Goodness. And we, we we clocked up, I think, five such awards and that rendered us the Colossal Fossil of the whole, um, the, the whole conference. You know, I mean, mm. there are so many embarrassments to that extent. So, yes. The, the fact is Australia is particularly bad. Like we are the worst. Mm. We have, and, and particularly on when it comes to climate policy. And so, yes, it is up to industry. Um, it is really hard for industry because they don't have the guidelines and the aims and the policies from the federal government, but I'm hoping that's changing. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's going to take time. And to, speaking to the, the innovation piece that we were referring to earlier, yes. the creativity piece, I feel that Australia has been left a little behind on green innovation because there hasn't been a culture of that for quite some time. We've been living in relative opulence. We had 30 years of uninterrupted economic growth, the only OECD country in the world to have experienced that. Um, and even during the COVID -ish, you know, period, it was only a small blip. Yes. You know, and so what that has meant is that innovation has suffered. And you mentioned it before, there is an absolute inverse correlation between opulence and innovation. Mm. Um, and that's what we've been lacking here. And so we're a little slow off the mark. Now, that yes. said, all the, all the solutions exist. All the solutions to the climate crisis exist. They're either being done in the Netherlands or in Norway or wherever it is. Yes. We, we do need cohesion and we need political will and we need consumer will. Yes. They need to happen all at the same time for these innovations to come through and be supported and become the status quo. A really good point. And look, those people listening uh, today, we, we the ARA has launched a roadmap to net zero by 2050. Of course, we believe it should be done earlier than that, but um, we've got a, a really good plan to help retailers uh, get there. We worked very closely with the British Retail Consortium uh, in, the, um, in the UK and uh, with the National Retail Federation in the US. Uh, and the, uh, we have a microsite on our website. If you want to uh, hop on on retail.org.au under sustainability, you'll find more details there to help you along the way. We're constantly updating as we're learning and getting information and people are providing us with um, great resources to help retailers uh, develop, do their bit when it comes to climate change. AWS is committed to building a sustainable business for our customers and the planet. To drive collective cross-sector action on the climate crisis, we co-founded the Climate Pledge with Global Optimism on the conviction that businesses are responsible, accountable and able to act on the climate crisis. 
To find out how AWS can support you to modernise your business to reach your organisation's sustainability goals, head to the link in the show notes. Now, one thing I did want to discuss with you, Sarah, because I, I, I know and we, we all know we're living in pretty overwhelming times of the pandemic, climate change, natural disasters, global conflicts. Now, you've written also a book about mental health and anxiety and your own personal experiences. In particular, in your uh, book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, as someone who's lived through it, what would be your advice to others in the context of everything that's going on in the world and their suggestions around coping mechanisms? Mm, okay. Um, yeah, I think that's what we've got to be talking about now. We can talk about we need to accept anxiety. I think where most people are at is like, <laughs> yes. help me with some fixes and yes. some some practices and mindsets that actually shift our thinking on it. So, I, I guess I've got a couple of a, a couple of hacks um, that you know I've I've practiced. You know, the wonderful thing about writing a book and taking seven years to write it about anxiety is that you kind of have to live by it. It's a bit yeah. like writing a book about sugar. I will not be able to eat a Mars bar or drink a Coke in public, right? It's quite good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, one of the things um, that I often talk about and it's not often discussed is that. A big part of Western's, the Western world's relationship with anxiety is that we don't just do anxiety. And anxiety is a really appropriate response to the world at the moment. The problem is we get anxious about being anxious. So we think we shouldn't be anxious and we should be yes. coping better, so we get anxious about that. Then we get anxious about being anxious about being anxious and down the rabbit hole we go. And one of the things I like to say is do anxiety once. Yeah. And to do anxiety once entails a few things. Um, it, it basically acknowledges that it is a very important, appropriate response to a scenario. And once we realise that, we can then go back and go, well, what's the scenario that we are responding to? What is the fearful situation or the wrong situation? So how I use my anxiety now is very much as my compass. You know, when I feel anxious, I go, hang on, this is appropriate. What's going on? Okay. And I sit down with a pen and a paper. This is another little tip. I'll throw mm. the tips in all together, but yes. um, sit down with a pen and paper or a pencil and paper, not a keyboard and write out what's going on. Have a conversation with yourself. Sometimes I write to myself like I'm writing a letter. Now, what that does is actually slows everything down. It goes at the same pace. We bring our mental faculties down to the same pace as discerning thought, which activates the prefrontal cortex, which then dampens the amygdala. The amygdala controls our flight or fight response. Mm. So slowing things down to the pace of discerning thought and walking is exactly at the pace of discerning thought and so is handwriting. So do two, those two things. Yeah. So um, I handwrite to think out my thoughts and go what's at the crux of all of this. And so to that extent I often say anxiety is my superpower because it now steers me. It actually highlights to me, ah, wrong way, go back. That's not what I need to be doing. I need to shift. And Brene Brown said to me, we had a conversation I think eight years ago we were speaking at the same conference and she said to me, Oh, anxiety basically tells me um, it, it tells me that something new is brewing mm. because it, it's time. It's it's like we get anxious when we're fed up and this is no longer tenable. The center cannot hold, and so we're about to go through change. Um, the other thing pertaining to that that I do to ensure that I'm only doing anxiety once, and then that in itself stops me from going down that spiral, yes. is to remind myself that. Excitement, anxiety trigger the same part of the brain. It's the same chemical response. And so we have the choice. We can actually tell ourselves when we're anxious, as long as we're not too anxious, that I'm excited. 
And I actually have that phrase, I'm doing excitement. I'm doing excitement right now. Right. And I'll do that when I'm about to do some public speaking, when I have to come onto a podcast <laughs> um, like this. Um, I, you know, I'm anxious, but then I just tell myself, no, this is exciting. Right. And you can actually reframe it. Another little piece of reframing is to remember that a panic attack, which I think a lot of people who have anxiety, that's how they experience their anxiety, mm. particularly these days. A panic attack only ever lasts 15 to 20 minutes. That's yeah. a scientific fact. Very, very rarely longer than 25 minutes. We can handle that. A, a normal adult can handle an emotional response, no matter how painful, if we know it's only going to be 15 mm. to 20 minutes, if we can remind ourselves of that. There are other things we can do that are very practical, make less decisions. The decision-making part of the brain is in the same part of the brain that controls anxiety. It's the amygdala, very old part of the brain. Mm. It can only do one thing at once. So if we are overtaxing with too many decisions, we will get anxious. If we're anxious, we can't make decisions. Have you ever mm. noticed that when you're anxious? Yeah, it's, somebody it's a says really to good you, point. It's a really mm. good point. Um, so you're almost using the anxiety as, a, as a, almost like a sixth sense. It helps you navigate your way through. It's it's a heightened level of emotional intelligence where you can where it helps you make decisions rather than actually take that fight or flight response. You're either using it for good or you end up down the the rabbit hole. So yeah. you, you you can mind from a mindset point of view just drive it down a, a particular path. So it aids the outcome in a positive way. And and paradoxically. To do that, you've got to allow the anxiety to happen. Right. Do you know what I mean? But you've got to then modulate it. So my book um, really tries to show that there's a two-pronged approach. Yes. You allow it to happen, but at the same time you have modulation techniques so that it doesn't get out of control. Yeah. So things like make less decisions so that you don't get over-anxious. Mm. Um, and some tips for people who have staff you know, I'm often talking to people who've got mm. employees who get anxiety. Um, one of the best things you can do is make decisions for them, which seems counterintuitive, yes. but a staff member might come to you and go, I can't work it out. You know, it's either option A or option B. And generally, if they're anxious, they're really, really um, high performing yes. and they really care about things. Yes. And they've researched option A and B to the nth degree. And really what you as an employer can bear in mind is they're probably both really good options if they've gone, if yeah. they've got to that stuck place and they're that anxious about it. So choose B, just choose B. Mm -hmm. And you say to them, what I'm hearing from you is that B is a really good option. And you make the decision for them so that they can elevate themselves out of that anxiety mm -hmm. and then function again. And then they make option B the right choice. And I used to do this at Cosmo when I couldn't decide on a cover. I used to go to my publisher and go, Angelina in a green dress or Angelina in a red dress. And she'd just choose. And she didn't really care. I knew she didn't really care. But I'd go back to my office and I'd tell my art director, it's green. It's the green dress. And she, they'd go, unreal. And off they'd go and they'd come up with a really good contrasting hot pink and yes. a silver masthead. And then the, you know, the copywriters would come up with really good Cover lines because there's a decision that has been made and there's momentum. Yes. The final piece of advice I'd give is um, one of the best techniques for modulating anxiety is to turn it into action. So both physically and during the pandemic, there was I did a lot of talks, you know, to different groups mm. and um, literally dancing or walking or running it out will actually really, really help. Um, and the other thing is um, action in the terms of fighting for something, mm. you know, rising um, to something bigger than yourself, being of service, countless books to this effect. And if I can throw a book at you, which I think is just wonderful, is um, 
is uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Right. Um, it's a wonderful book by a psychologist who was in Auschwitz. He writes it in nine days after he gets out. And um, really, it's a book about how who survived and who didn't. And the people who survived... Wow are the ones that lived for a purpose greater than themselves. Interesting. And whenever, and psychologists now show that if you take your anxiety and you actually turn it into action, whether it's feeding the homeless, whether it's, I don't know, researching climate issues Mm. and signing petitions, Mm. you know, whatever it is, it it might even be, and to quote Pima Chodron, one of my favourite voices in this area, she says, start where you are. Yes. If you are... I don't know, if you're working in a fashion retail chain, start where you are, ban takeaway coffee cups in the tea room, whatever it might be, it works. Mm. So do you think you can, based on what you're just saying then, it's interesting um, conversation, have you learnt to embrace your anxiety and actually use it Use it for the purpose of actually navigating your your thoughts and in in such a positive way that it actually helps you now rather than uh, attracts rather than detracts from what you're doing? Absolutely, it has. Like I said before, I made a joke of it. Writing a book about something will force you to actually live out these yes, practices. Yes. So that has also helped. But really, the biggest help has been my climate work. The more that I engross myself in the, our existential crisis yes. and being of service to humans who care about this but are overwhelmed and don't have maybe the resources I have to go down the rabbit holes and research and find the right ways to go about it, um, that has alleviated my anxiety like nothing else. And for listeners, um, just as context, I'm very open about this, but it's sometimes important just to flag, you know, my anxiety was debilitating. I I have bipolar. I was diagnosed when I was 21, back when it was called manic depression. And I have quite crippling obsessive compulsive disorder, both of which, and this is another technique for man- managing anxiety, mm. is to understand the importance and the role, the evolutionary role it's always plays, played. Bipolar and OCD exists in 1.2 to 1.4% of every population around the world, whether we're here in Australia or in the Kalahari Desert or in the Amazon, yes. and it exists as an evolutionary quirk um, to ensure that some of the population uh, have got a heightened sense of safety and vigilance, and in the case of bipolar, will go out to the extremes and try new things. Yeah. So that understanding of things has helped me. So. That's another technique is soul nerding. Soul nerding as a fix for under, just understanding, understanding that something very um, wonderful creators and contributors and business people had anxiety and um, you can do both. I opened the book with uh, uh, interviewing the Dalai Lama on this and, you know, and essentially what he, you know, it's a big long parable, which I won't share here, but essentially what it comes out as, you know what, you can be fretty, you can be awake at three in the morning, you can have all kinds of crippling anxiety, you can think your life is a disaster and you can get on with having a great life. Don't waste your life trying to think that you're going to solve anxiety your anxiety will actually lead you to the great life. That's very interesting. Look, you've now inspired me to to read. I haven't read First We Make the Best Beautifuls by Sarah Wilson. So if you're the listeners that are interested in actually learning more about anxiety, um, head to your fa- favourite bookstore. And I think um, it sounds like a really good read, Sarah. And I, I, again, you know, we, you and I could do chatting forever. Mm-hmm. I've got one last question for you. Uh, yes. On climate change, we're often consumed by the b- bad news and generally the expert reports that paint a dire picture of what the future will look like. Are you optimistic about the future and how do you think retail and business community could be responding and helping? 
Yeah. Okay. So to the first part of the question, um, I am not optimistic. I'm hopeful right. because hope is optimism with action. It's not sitting back. I think optimism is as destructive as pessimism because it basically goes, oh, it'll all be fine. I don't have to do anything. Hope is engaged. Hope is um, an absolute fear it might not work out, but in the fighting of it, it provides you with the the light to keep going. Um, look, Paul, the, 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 stat, the stats are stacked against us. Mm. It is not looking good. And every moment that goes by of inaction, um, we are putting ourselves at peril. I speak to climate scientists, you know, weekly, and I interviewed a whole, a lot of them for my book. And um, as they say, it's worse than what we think. We have overstepped four of the nine planetary boundaries. I mean, I could rattle off all the stats mm. of what it's going to look mm. like. Um, we are we are basically in that sort of doomsday clock. We're a couple of seconds from midnight. Um, now, I am somebody who believes in the absolute beauty of human nature where I use the analogy of the football game, you know, where the losing side is down by three points and the fans are starting to leave the stadium and, you know, it's not looking good. But then something happens in the losing side, what I call a kamikaze energy. They just find something and they throw all the normal rules out the window and they go for it. And you know what? And, you know, plant the winning try or kick the goal or whatever it is. I don't obviously play sport too often or engage in it too much. But um, the point is, is that history is full of these kinds of games. Humans have got this incredible ability to just fire up and throw everything at it. That is the stage we're at. And it's really difficult because there's a cognitive dissonance. We can't see it quite yet. We kind of, you know, we've got lots of doubt coming from politicians who like to fuel doubt, the merchants of doubt, as it's called. In terms of what retailers and anyone listening to this can do is, is to do everything you can. Yes. We can save this scenario but only if everyone does everything they can all at once. Now, I can't tell you what your everything is going to look like, um, but it's game on time. Mm. It's time for kamikaze, throw the rules out the window, try everything and do it with passion. And it's not enough anymore to say, do your bit, do your little bit. The little bit's not going to cut it. Um, It's going to have to be an all-in thing. And it's not as frightening as people think. I mean, you this can be fun. This can actually be exciting. I'm excited about the possibilities. I'm excited about all the different ways we can do things differently. Yes. There's degrowth economics, um, which is doing heaps and heaps of great stuff around this. And I encourage anyone to, I mean, I've done a couple of interviews with people on my podcast. Um, they're wonderful thinkers. Yes. They're people who work in this space, in retail in, and so on. And they they are seeing new, fresh ways of going about things, you know, citing brands like Patagonia and and so on who are really doing fun stuff. I think predominantly we're quite bored of the old way. Yes. Right? It's demoralising. We know it's going nowhere. We know it can't stack up consuming five to seven planet Earths every year. It's gross. Mm. And so let's get excited. Let's go and throw everything at it and start where you are. It's both simple and it's everything. But that's life, eh? Sarah Wilson, what a great way to end this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on all the work you're doing on a number of fronts. Thanks for chatting and all the best for the future. I thank you very much. 
Thank you for joining me for some retail therapy. With special thanks to our season partner, AWS, who can assist retailers navigating through their own sustainability journey with a wealth of practical resources. For more information, check out the show notes. Make sure you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. For more information about the work we do at the ARA, head to our website, retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. All of the links can be found in the show notes.